you've done some incredible things in your life, but it all kind of has to start somewhere. We're thinking, why hasn't someone done this before? Are we missing something? Because this seems like an obvious solution to a big problem. We should absolutely be encouraging businesses to take on the world, but why can't they take on the world from Australia? We've essentially gone viral because of a virus. We saw daily sales double one day and then 12x the day after that. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of uh, People Building Businesses. Today I'm very, very excited to have Richard Joff, the founder and CEO of Honey Insurance, which is reshaping the home insurance industry. Richard is a serial entrepreneur with an incredibly impressive track record. So I'm very excited to have him here. Richard, thanks for being on the podcast. Of course, my pleasure. Nice to meet you guys. So I'd love to start by understanding your history. You obviously don't sound Australian. Uh, I'm guessing you've come from <laughs> right. another part of the globe. So <laughs> could you talk about, you know, where, where you grew up and maybe a, a bit about your upbringing and uh, your early life, I guess? Uh, sure. I, um, I grew up between South Africa and Canada and moved when I was, you know, kind of just in high school or so. Um, and my dad's an entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. So I suppose not in the way we define it today. I think in those days it wasn't so cool. It was really just a businessman. And, uh, but, you know, they started a bunch of things and launched a bunch of ideas. And so I definitely grew up learning through osmosis, I think, you know, at the dinner table, all the ins and outs of things that we would take for granted, I think. Um, and I went to business school in Canada and a lot of South Africans had moved to Australia. So I, I went to UNSW, like 50% of the current, you know, population of Sydney, I think originally came here as students or backpackers. So I'm, guilty guilty and foul of that and so I came here and really loved it but um ended up going into the corporate world and spent some time uh in New York uh, I was a banker doing tech M&A and uh, I worked for the company called McKinsey and you know I was meant to go to business school and keep going on that track and but I've just always been a really passionate entrepreneur I've been starting things since I was gosh probably 13 or 14 years old honestly um from patents when I was 14 down to a little you know, rinky-dink startups that nearly got me kicked out of university at 18, 19. <laughs> so, you know, I had no place in the corporate world. I was average at best there, if I'm really honest with you. And so I, I realized that wasn't really my calling. I wanted to create things. I hated being told what to do and doing something that's not rational. You know, like that feeling where your boss tells you to do something, you know, it doesn't make sense. I just it literally mm. killed me, soul destroying. And so I was like, I don't want to do this. Why, why go to business school and come back to a job I don't love? And so I started my first company. I was actually in Sydney. I was at McKinsey at the time um, on a one-year kind of exchange program, so to speak. And um, and I started my first company here, and that led to a second eventually, and, and now a third. Um, but I think a lot of my upbringing was, you know, I think immigration and and coming from an entrepreneurial scrappy background. It kind of gives you a lot of the foundational tools to realize that you know you're okay with a low baseline. Like I think a lot of people cook up ideas in their head around you overemphasize risk, so to speak. And I think that if you've mm. lived, if you've, you know, had to struggle before, I think a lot, then you realize there's just like infinite upside for very little downside. I think we're, we're designed as human beings typically to, you know, avoid getting eaten by the lion rather than winning the lottery. And so I think, uh, you know, we constantly greatly overestimate downside and greatly underestimate upside. And I think, you know, I think that's why a lot of people, I think that are very successful entrepreneurs, not all, but a lot of them come from, you know, middle-class families, a lot of them are immigrants or people that understand that it ain't so bad. Like the whole thing could collapse, you get a job, you can be just fine. 
And uh, mm. so I think I'm very lucky to come from that background, right? Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it, it's interesting that you went from, you know, Morgan Stanley in your investment banking uh, background to McKinsey uh, as a consultant there to being a startup founder, because for a lot of people, um, you know, getting a job at Morgan Stanley or getting a job at McKinsey is kind of like the pinnacle of the career. So I guess, you know, what, what, what was the light bulb moment for you as you were working in these companies to kind of go, Hey, you know, it's time for me to jump out and, and start a company. Uh, I think there's two parts there, right? I mean, the, the first part for me is when I looked up at the people in those big companies, I didn't look at people that I wanted to be like when I was older. So when I thought about, you know, what I aspire to be like, you know, conceptually, you know, I like, the Richard Branson's of the world or the Gateses, or, you know, those are people that I looked up at or even people that hadn't made it by the way, but people that I really try to create things where I looked up at them and was like, wow, like, wouldn't it be amazing to be a little version of that, right? And I looked up at the partners at the banks and, and all these places that are, I know are portrayed as being so sexy. Um, and I thought to myself, gosh, do I want to like go to Harvard, go back to these places? Like, is this, that, that's not the future that, it didn't feel right for me, I think is what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with those things, but for me, it would have been, yeah. It wasn't what I aspired to do in my life and it wasn't who I looked at myself as aspiring to be like. And so I think part of it was when I looked up at where my life could be in, in 15, 20, 25 years, it, it wasn't like a trajectory that I would have said, oh my gosh, if I did everything right and accomplished that professionally, I'd be so proud. I'd be so happy. You know, the pinnacle yeah. of that brought happiness to me. And then I think the second is, is that I just think sometimes you have to go out there and try a lot of things to realize it's kind of like elimination more than it is finding something. I think that for a lot of things in life, uh, and I think it can be anything from dating to friends to your career, but I think a lot of it has to do with figuring out what you don't want more than what you want. I think very few people mm. wake up and go, oh, I've always wanted to be a, you know, fill in the blank, right? I, I know that this is what I need in order to have a healthy relationship, right? And I think a lot of it comes like you go through these different experiences and you realize you're like, yeah, big companies not so much so it's a small company okay now i need to figure out if i should start this small company join it when it's on a growth trajectory or when they're kind of late stages because i need structure okay and so you kind of go on that adventure right and then you go okay i like the growth part in smaller companies but you know i'm not sure if i'm loving this engineering thing maybe products more my thing i want to be seeing customers more you kind of and so i think a lot of it is is really by kind of going through these experiences you realize like what, what doesn't make sense for you i think a lot and so for me um, that's how like a lot of these things ended up playing out like that, right? Yeah, process of elimination. That's great advice. I mean, so your first company was Park Assist. Um, uh -huh. You've created the first parking sensor network, which basically eliminated the stress of finding parking. Uh, yeah. Where did you come up with the idea? The idea actually, the original incarnations existed elsewhere. The um, you know the idea of these green and red lights that shows you where to park your car that had existed mm. maybe for a decade, really before, but it never really taken off. It existed in Europe. Um, and so the, the idea originally was just simply bring it to Australia, frankly, put a bit of a, a software layer on it and put, put my own brand in it and call it a day and then sell it to some of these bigger companies. Obviously that was incredibly naive given the complexity of building tech. <laughs> you know, I thought I'd be done and rich in, in three years and onto my next one. Um, so there were many complexities, but long story short, you know, Australia was a very small market within 18 months I'd left and went to the UK to start building an office in London. I mean, there's, it's infrastructure, right? So you're selling technology that costs one to $3 million on a, on a five-year sales cycle, trying to make it a two-year sales cycle with an oily rag and 150 grand, you know, drawing a salary out of that measly oily yeah. rag. And so that, that's a very, very hard, you know, problem to solve, I think. And, uh, you know, and when you're young, selling infrastructure ain't that, um, 
that's that's hard, right? Like you're dealing with you're competing with the Siemens, a complex solution selling to these very large organizations, procurement machines, like it's it's hard. And so I ended up in the UK and doing a whole bunch of deals, but I realized very quickly the business wasn't going to go anywhere unless we could really add more value because if we were just going to sell these green and red lights, you know, Chinese companies would dump cheap hardware and equipment on the market in a similar way. They'd pump it through distribution channels that were selling more than one product. It would just end badly. I kind of saw the writing on the wall. And so I eventually started, um, my idea was to create a wireless sensor network. I was actually walking through um, a car park, a Tesco car park, literally at midnight one night coming home from work. And there was this guy walking around the car park, putting all of the license plates into the car. Uh, it was maybe 10 p.m. or something. And I said to him, I'm like, what right. are you doing? And this guy said, well, you're not allowed to stay over two hours at Tesco because you get a ticket, right? I was, everyone would park their car, leave it overnight, do it in the morning for work. And because it's expensive everywhere. No one would have parking spaces to, to go shopping. So I walk around mm. every single two hours, literally, and I give you tickets. And I'm talking like, you know, 150, 200 pounds, right? Very expensive. And so I thought to myself, this is crazy. What if you just put a sensor in the ground? You gave a handheld device to the dude who's got the shopping trolley and you don't need the guy walking around anymore. If someone stays over two hours, I'll go beep, beep, beep. And the guy with the shopping trolley, will give you a ticket, done. And that, you know, the human being costs you 60,000 pounds. So if I can sell this thing for 30,000 and make it for 15, I'm in business, right? So I basically went with like literally an empty sensor to Tesco and Sainsbury and, and try to convince these guys to give a deposit, <laughs> which, they, which they eventually did. Um, wow. And then we eventually went and engineered that, which, started to work but had huge technical problems largely in the end failed um the technology it was another good example of um taking too much risk you know we took business model technology risk and execution risk um technology never really got there and so i, I went back to the, the green and red lights and eventually had cameras put in my idea actually was to try it which didn't really work but my idea was to create uh, almost like a an app for infrastructure. So imagine you can buy the green and red lights that show you where to park your car, but then for another $100,000, yeah, you could have the first find your car solution. For another 100,000, yeah, you could charge more for the best spaces in the shopping mall. For 100 grand, yeah, you could have security. So if someone stayed, you know, over eight hours, you'd know what's going on. And so I wanted to try and sell these software apps in a sense to the big yep. infrastructure players, but it was very complex. It works a little bit, you know, it was maybe five to 10% of our revenue in the end, but it was, it was an uphill battle trying to sell software effectively to procurement departments that want to buy oneself. Um, but it did save yeah. the company. You know, I moved to New York and um, we turned the company around and I, I built it up to profitability, sold it to kind of a big public company in the end and, you know, happily ever after, but, you know, certainly nearly died a hundred times between start and there. Right? So. <laughs> yeah. And you built it up over eight years as well, which was an incredible amount of time uh, and dedication for, you know, for the company. I, so, well, I think it's normal. I, I think it's a complete illusion to think that you can, mm. I think you hear of these crazy edge cases um, or people who start companies and sell them in two or three years. You know, I think, look, you can, you can kind of think of things as well, I think as being features or platforms, right? I mean, if, you, if you're building a widget that's, that, that sits on someone else's platform, right? then sure, you can sell it to the platform, right? And that could be anything yeah. from Facebook to Google to whatever, but you can sell it to that platform pretty quickly, right? But if you want to build a company that really matters at scale, it's super hard. You know, I think it takes at least three years to be out of the woods where no mm. single phone call could be ex existential and kill you. And um, where you just sleep at night. I mean, I think it's three years to sleep at night. And then, you know, by the time you get to five years, okay, now you've got a real team, you've got your trajectory, maybe you're profitable, right? 
you're not going to sell for seven, eight years. And, and then you stick around for another year or two, like you're in for a decade. And so I just think, I think you see these extreme edge cases. It's almost like reading about the one person, you know, who choked on Cheerios this morning, right? Rather than 900, 999,999 that just yep. happened. <laughs> yeah. You can see these crazy edge cases, but I think the reality is that the vast majority of time, you're either dead in a couple of years, right? And if you're smart and work hard, you're not going to pack up your toys in six months. So you're going to fight it out for two or three years, right? To, to death. And if it does work, then it's a seven to 10 year journey, right? Um, mm. And when that's just fine and you should be happy with that. But I think my journeys were largely um, consistent with, I think, the norm rather than anything unusual. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of times that, you know, the company was close to, to death or, you know, the company was in trouble. I mean, how do you, how do you make the decision to continue um, rather than, you know, cutting your, your risk and starting over fresh? Yeah, it's, I'll tell you how I felt about it. And obviously I think I've learned a lot from talking about my late 20s and all that, right? But I think, you know, I mean, at the time, I think I was just desperate from really honest with you, right? I mean, I, mm. I was living in America, like, you know, I have to earn my own inheritance, right? Like I was, you know, like there was no fallback position for me. So I was kind of on my own. Um, whether I was in London or in New York, I'm not from there. So I was, I was quite literally by myself and having to figure it out. And if it fell over, I would have, you know, I would have had been bankrupt with no real infrastructure or support in a foreign country. So it really wasn't like failure was not an option and whatever that meant, right? I mean, that could be literally 100, 120 hours a week for, I don't mean weeks or months, years on end, right? Like yeah. there was no end to what I would suffer to make sure it didn't fail. So I think... I think when you're desperate, um, you get creative, you get scrappy, you know, you don't mind ending an interview that doesn't work in an hour and 10 minutes. You're just like, you're on, on next. You don't have the luxury of like moping around and feeling sorry for yourself or that that investor didn't call you back. You just like, that's, that's lovely, <laughs> you know, like if you have the luxury, but if you don't have the luxury and it's not on the table. And so I think part of it, I never really contemplated the idea of it not working. It was, it would, it would have just been like, it was a foreign concept. It, it, even in, I mean, in all of my companies, in all honesty, I've never really contemplated true failure. I mean, I've expected that it's going to be incredibly hard, but I've always assumed I'd figure it out somehow in the end. Um, I think as I've gotten older and a bit more mature, I've realized, you know, I think what I realized in my first two companies was that, like, there's no, one of the most important lessons I've ever learned is that it's better to be average in a top quartile industry than the very best at a bottom quartile. Right. And it's like literally one of the most powerful pieces of advice that I learned when I was younger and selectively decided to forget. Right. Because it didn't suit me. And, you know, parking and infrastructure is a not a great industry. Right. Long sales cycles, extremely expensive. You need multiple products to make it make sense selling to the same human being at the airport. It's just, you know, um, this is my second company was, again, in recruiting and HR. Again, everyone did great. It worked out. But it was in spite of that, you know, we were best in the bottom quartile, right? You're selling HR departments. Like it's an unsophisticated department that's not technology enabled, right? You're not selling to CTOs or CFOs or CEOs, right? Um, it's a cost center. So anything you're selling has to displace humans. They don't have extra budgets, right? So if you if you think about the space you're going into, you can have the most whiz-bang idea. But the reality is that if you're going into a bottom quartile industry or a poor industry, do you want to open a retail store? I mean, maybe you got the best idea, but not mm. a great idea, right? Like you can build yeah. anything you want on Amazon right now, 
And, you know, there's tens of thousands of people running multi-million dollar profitable companies on Amazon right now. So, you know, do you want to fight with the best idea in a bad industry? And the answer is it, it doesn't, the data does not support that, right? And so I think uh, what I've learned, you know, I think in this experience was that not that giving up, you know, is, is acceptable, but I think you don't want to be the victim of a zombie company, right? Like if you're in a company and the value prop's not working and you've spoken to your customers, you have a responsibility to, to do everything you can to quantify if that will work or not. So you sit down with the customer and you go, look, would you actually give me a deposit for this product, like for this product if I built it, right? And it could be an app, it could be anything, a hardware product, anything, right? And the customer goes, no, you go, okay, well, would you do it for half the price? Would you do it if it was twice as good? You kind of get to a spec where they eventually say, yes, I would give you a deposit for 50% of the money because it really, okay, great. Then you're solving a real problem. Like unless they're cutting you a check, there's no way to verify if they just like you or don't like the idea of saying no to you, okay? Like a check is the only true business model validation. And so I think what I've learned is, is that you kind of go on this journey and unless someone's gonna cut a check, um, you really don't know if you're just chasing a dream that no one's interested in. So you have to get as, as quickly as you can to the bottom of whether or not this idea you have, that you're this problem you're trying to solve, right? Really matters to anyone other than you and your, your friends, right? Because if the customer is not gonna pay for it, and it's not getting scale, then you need to look around that problem for other problems that could be more painful that they will cough up a deposit for or pay for or take a risk for. And if there's nothing there, you shouldn't be wasting your life, right? So I think um, I think what you what you see a lot of, which, which I find very sad, is you do find a lot of first-time entrepreneurs that don't have experience and they go out there and they create kind of these zombie companies where they're synthetically keeping it alive, right? They're smart and they work their butts off. And so instead of making 150 or 200 grand a year in a job, they're making nothing or 50 grand or 100 grand. They're slaving away at a discount effectively. And they're working twice the hours of any normal human, right? And so they're keeping it alive, but it's not a, they're not really going after a problem that actually makes sense, right? And I think you have to be very disciplined about making sure that you're going after a problem that A, is big enough that if you solve it, you can actually build a company around it. And B, someone's really willing to pay enough that you can make a good business out of that, right? Like you have to be disciplined about the quest for, the problem, like that, that focus, I think, right? And so, you know, and I think I lacked that in the early days. I think that I spent many years of my life um, in both companies, by the way, both when I started Park Assist and when I started Stella, I think I spent several years clinging too closely to the original problem that I went after. And instead of finding a problem that would have maybe accelerated me 10 out of 10, right? I kept accelerating into a five out of 10. So it was good enough. It kind of kept me alive. It was kind of trucking along and I just wouldn't let go of like, it was almost became part of my identity, right? Like, no, 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 this is our thing. This is our, and it's not. The thing is to build a great company and it's not to cling to the original solution that you that you cooked up, right? Um, so I've, I've tried to become more um, distant in how I attach myself to, um, to problems and ideas, right? Yeah. That's incredible advice. And you briefly mentioned Stella. I don't want to spend too much time on it, um, but could you just quickly condense your experience building Stella and subsequently, you know, selling it uh, into a combined, you know, $800 million revenue company? Um, could you just condense that experience into, you know, a couple of minutes of, you know, starting and subsequently selling that company? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so Stella was a really interesting company. Um, my, my idea there was 99% of people that apply for jobs don't get the job essentially a wasted resource. And, you know, Google would kill to see the people that had interviews 
at Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs had killed to see the people in Netflix and so on and so forth. And so my idea was, was to really hack all of these recruiting systems across these big companies, put an AI system in the middle and then reroute the labor market and kind of speed up all of their recruiting departments. And so we raised a whole bunch of money, again, all from strategics, which is which I've done three times. I nearly always like to raise from, from customers effectively rather than VCs, which we can talk about, but I'm very passionate about that. Um, we scaled it. It didn't work originally in the knowledge worker space. So we had over 150 companies, about 50 of the Fortune 500. I mean, millions, it was working, but it, it, there wasn't enough marketplace liquidity, but it ended up, did work in the hourly space and in the healthcare space. So it turns out that if you applied to, you know, the post office or a nursing job, your ability to go get a job that's similar elsewhere is much higher than if you applied for a UX developer job which is statistically. And so it worked in that, in that field and it started scaling and, you know, and it was a happily ever after in the end. I think I learned a couple of huge things. I think number one, um, moving industries is far more painful than I gave you credit for. Like it's easy when you're in an industry to think that you're just going to do another startup. And it, it really takes two years to like truly understand the nuances in new, new industry. Like I've done it three times now and it's always the same. So you know, if you're starting something new, like don't underestimate of making sure I think you pivot around either something you know, meaning SaaS, consumer, marketplace, or around an industry that you know, FinTech, et cetera, right? Like your contacts, your, your contacts and to be able to raise money, to build a team, to understand the customers. It is just, it is enormously painful learning curve. And it's easy to forget that um, when you're, you know, when you're leaving. So I think that was one thing I learned. Um, the second is just the importance of team, you know, um, I had an incredible co-founder in my second business. He was wonderful to work with. We were very closely aligned. Um, you know, be, having a great co-founder can make or break, I think, a business or be very, very painful. And you want to make sure you have alignment. So my first company, I really didn't have alignment. I had misalignment with different types of investors. I had a co-founder that didn't really work at all. And, you know, and the second time, all of them were strong. I had a strong co-founder, I had strong investors who were aligned, et cetera. So I think you want to make sure that people across the board, both employees, founder and investors are looking to do the same thing, right? If you have people on the team who wanna get a three to five times their money and it all stakes, not fail, and you have other people who want a big vision and other people who wanna get out in four years, not eight, like those are inconsistent things that lead to inconsistent decisions and create massive friction. And so I, I think I, I learned how important it is to create just ruthless alignment. Um, you have to be disciplined with that, right? Um, yes. So yeah. How did you feel after uh, merging the company? Was it a, a breath of fresh air? Was it a big relief for you, or you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, of course it was. Just to put it mildly, um, I think it, it always is. <laughs> um, you know, the truth. I was I was in Australia, right? Um, I was two little kids, and um, I went through a divorce that was very, very difficult. And, and so I brought my kids to Australia um, to make sure that they had family around them. Um, and so for me, I was, I was trying to commute. It was incredibly hard. I was commuting back to San Francisco in our New York office with a kid in diapers, you know, while kind of working out at midnight. I mean, it was it was very unpleasant. And and eventually you just, you know, even if you are sleeping five hours a day and every minute you're trying to be productive, like at some point you just you're everyone, you know, you're a human, right? You just you can't do that indefinitely. And so as I said, I had a wonderful co-founder um, and he we switched roles. So I switched to chairman and he took over as CEO and he kind of managed the protest and did a wonderful job. And so uh, that gave me the space I needed eventually to start Honey and to really start rebuilding my life in Australia, you know, make a few friends, learn whatever stories and all that good stuff, right? Um, but yeah, so it was it was a big relief. And I'm, you know, most, most of course, I'm happy financially, but I'm, I'm really happy for the team. Like, they worked about stuff and 
it gives them um, a wonderful opportunity to build something really special, right? Yeah, thanks, Richard. I mean, moving on to Honey now, your third company. You, you know, you mentioned that Honey was conceived after you moved to Australia in 2019 um, on a holiday visa. You know, with your kids and during what was an extremely difficult time in your life. Could you talk to us about everything that led you down the path of overcoming that period and subsequently creating Honey? Yeah, you know, when I, yep, yeah, I mean, when I first came, I spent probably six months looking at whether or not to get a kind of a more traditional job. Like, should I, you know, be the CEO of a, is a public company? Should I join a venture fund or start a venture fund as a partner? I kind of looked at a bunch of options uh, and I spent nearly a year doing that, six, 12 months. And I just came to the conclusion, I wasn't passionate about it. And like, I love what I do so much. Like, it's, this isn't even work for me. Like, honestly, I love, I just love being an entrepreneur. It's like, I'm on the planet to do this thing, you know? And so I really wanted to, again, I wanted to build with an incredible team. Um, and I wanted to do it in a similar way, to, you know, that you can do it back in Silicon Valley, even though I know the rules here traditionally are a little different. And so I kind of made a decision that I wanted to swing for the fences and, and regardless of like what the norms were in Australia, um, I wanted to like, kind of do it my way if I could, or not at all, you know, I want to raise a lot, go after a big problem, work with a gifted team and, you know, and if not that, then for what, right? And so I thought I'd give it a crack. Uh, and insurance around the world, I mean, it's, insurance is a kind of a top five industry around the world. It's, it's massive and, and there's never really been much money flowing into it. You're seeing a massive amount of money flowing into it globally now from Lemonade and Hippo to WeFox to Nextdoor, you know, you name it. And you're seeing dozens literally of these multi-billion dollar unicorns in insurance and zero, nothing, not in Australia, right? So you kind of look at that as a technologist, you're like, what's going on? Why are you seeing all of these multi-billion dollar startups and in insurance around the world and like nothing in Australia, right? Um, and so I started digging in. I started looking at the different customer experiences. There's no question home insurance in my mind was where the biggest profit pool was. So if you were to look at the biggest opportunity where new technology and services could really improve an experience for a customer. Like how do you transform an experience? Home insurance is definitely the place. Um, and I wasn't really qualified to go after the complex things. Like I wasn't gonna try to sell insurance to an oil rig or get it to cyber insurance, right? So when you look at those sort of lines and, and you know, there's a lot of technology and services today that actually reduce risk in people's lives. So if you think about the way the insurance industry works like home insurance, for example, the companies in a sense are not incentivized really to keep you safer. I know that sounds terrible, right? But the way it works in this, in this country is you buy home insurance, you don't hear from them again. One year later, they reach out to you and ask you to increase, you know, typically premiums go up five or 10%. Uh, they renew, it's usually a text or an email and that's that, okay? And if you get a claim, the rejection rate on claims, 185,000 people last year got rejected in a claim. So one and a half billion dollars wow. is paid out by people like you and me, okay? Um, who had home insurance because 80% of the entire country is underinsured. So the way the game is played is you go online, it's almost impossible to understand you're buying. They kind of, you know, they give you the cheapest price possible. And so the spec on the insurance is very low and then something bad happens and you're kind of screwed, screwed okay? Uh, but because you're only, you know, it's only 6% chance you're making a claim, so be it. That's how this game works, okay? So really the question was, okay, this isn't working for, for the consumer, certainly. It's working for insurance companies perhaps. Um, what if you reverse the whole thing, okay? What if you actually invested and we invest up to $500 into the customers to actually reduce risk in their lives and then pass on the savings to them? It would create this crazy cycle, right? Where the customers are constantly below risk, better off and then cheaper. So the way it works is when you sign up for Honey, firstly, it's 
digital, right? So it's one third of the questions because we plug into satellite footage, we plug into public data. You don't have to like tell us what your roof is made out of. We can see from the satellites, right? We don't wow, have to tell us, incredible. for example, how many bathrooms you have. We plug into REA and all these other places, right? So how do we use all of this public data? So we don't have to ask you to rinse and repeat stuff that you don't know necessarily. So it's, it's like literally two thirds faster to actually buy the insurance. Um, when you sign up, you get $250 of sensors for free. So the sensors can detect if there's a water leak, it can detect if there's movement in your house when you're not at home, and it can detect as well, if your fire alarm goes off and you're sitting in a movie theater, it'll literally say like, beep, beep, Jason, your fire alarm's going off, okay? So it reduces risk. And then if you put them in, you get an 8% discount. So the message is, Jason, honey, easy to buy. It's a great home insurance product. By the way, we're gonna give you a lot of free stuff. And if you use it, we'll give you the, like, we'll just literally transfer the savings. So if people put in these 250 dollars of sensors free, they get an 8% discount every single year that they're doing it. Like that's what we calculate is the reduction in risk for you, your family and your life, right? And there'll be other services that we're giving people over time for free that we're kind of building around, um, which will be released over the coming years. And so the idea was, you know, can we create a company where we're quite literally reducing risk in people's lives, like saving lives, saving houses, and then passing on those savings and everyone wins. Like we're, we're winning because there's less less claims, the customers got cheaper price and society wins because people are safer, right? Yeah, what's interesting is that you're using all this publicly available data, which is also accessible by the other insurers. Mm. Um, yeah. I guess my question is, why aren't they doing this? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to them, of course. I think your question is the same in the US and Europe and everywhere else that all these billion dollar you know, insurance techs have, have worked. I think what I would say to you is these companies, they've been around, for you know 120 years most of their software platforms were developed 20 30 40 years ago like these are not new platforms and i think when you're dealing with a highly regulated industry like insurance other than healthcare probably the most regulated in the world by the way um you know upgrading your your platform is is incredibly hard right you're talking three five-year projects um you're APRA regulated, your compliance is incredible. So these companies are almost run by their legal teams at this point, right? They're not thinking, how do we innovate? So, so to answer your question, I just I don't think it's big enough for them to care often. Like if you're a big insurance company, Australia is a part of your business. Within Australia, you have commercial and personal lines. And then personal lines, you've got home. And then within home, you're doing just fine because four companies control three quarters of the market. So like, really, we're gonna spend tens of millions replatforming to like to what now? Why? <laughs> it doesn't stack up. And so unless you start meaningfully yeah. losing market share, why would you do that? And so I think part of it is, yeah. is that it doesn't make economic sense necessarily to replatform at that scale without a burning platform to the velocity that they move. They probably will do this stuff in five, 10 or 15 years, right? Um, and then I think a lot of it is just very conservative. Like to give you an extreme example, right? Let's say for example, that you put a whole bunch of information already into, um, you know, one of the online property platforms. Well, let's say you, you, you're filling out a form. Some people would argue, how do we know that it's not Jason's wife that actually put that information in, right? And you go, but that's, but, but Jason's saying, that, but Jason filled out the application. They go, but how do you know for sure, right? Or, you know, Jason's saying that he doesn't switch on the sensors. How do you know for sure? And you, you go, but, but that seems like higher odds are getting hit by lightning than some of those things, right? But if you're a lawyer in an insurance company or signing off a regulatory, you might not be comfortable using the data because what if we said that you have terracotta roof? And then Jason now says, but, but technically I didn't. And then there was a, 
catastrophe. And now Jason claims that we owe him 422,000, not 424,000. How does that flow through to our, to how we actually, you know, deal with our balance sheet? You know, so you have these bizarre conversations that don't make commercial sense, I would say, within some of these insurance companies. Uh, they're detached from what customers need, but they're so conservative and so mired and regulatory that it's very hard to be innovative. And then if you think about an existing customer base, you have to retrofit it. So for example, if you have, you know, if you have 2 million customers and you're now shipping out sensors, you have to do that for 2 million customers. Are you going to ship out $250 of sensors to 2 million customers? Now, you don't have to be a math genius to realize that's $50 million. That's, that's a an enormous money. amount of money. And you haven't even, you haven't yeah. integrated that yet. You haven't designed other services yet. You're giving out an 8% discount. Like, does it really reduce? claims and by how much now you now you got a two you know you got a billion dollar book of business you're going to discount that eight percent that's 80 million dollars in discounts per year we're going to ship 50 million dollars of technology and by the way who's doing this internally what now there's no so i think when you think about what's required at scale for big companies to innovate needing to retroactively put this across their existing customer base it's just it's incredibly hard it's, it's easier to let little companies like honey innovate and then buy us or partner with us right and i think that's what you generally see you go, you know big companies have a lot of good things going for them um but speed is not one of them right and so you know we have an underwriter racq they invested into honey and, and they did that for that reason and they've been amazing to work with right they've said look you guys are going to basically be our innovation hub you're going to invent all these amazing things for people for home insurance we'd love to be able to learn from you and we'll give you the infrastructure and the app support and all these things that would cost you tens of millions of dollars to build and maintain, right? We'll give you that support. You kind of go hog wild, like figure out what Australian consumers need and what the future of home insurance should be. Save people money, reduce risk in their lives, figure out new ways to buy. And we'll give you this infrastructure that's really commoditized in a sense, right? Like you don't need to know how to do an actual model for catastrophic risk in Queensland, right? Like that's not gonna differentiate you as a business. Yeah, and they've got all that, so you can focus on the the, the the technology behind it and the customer acquisition, and I guess yeah, exactly the, the stuff right. that other insurers don't do. Right. Yeah, I mean that's a good segue to my next question. You know, you, Honey launched with fifteen point five million Australian dollars of seed funding, which is, according to TechCrunch, uh, the largest ever seed round for an Australian tech startup. Uh, I guess there are two things that are interesting about this. One is that you know it's the largest seed round ever for, for an Australian startup, and two, if you look at the investor list, it, it's comprised a lot of you know what you would call strategics, right? It's RACQ, it's PEXA, uh, Mervac. You've got you know Afterpay co-founder Anthony Eisen, um, you know Tim yeah. Fong from Airtasker. Uh, it, it's an incredible milestone. So you know, I guess I've got two questions as part of that. Uh, one, could you tell us a story about how you know you raised that seed round, and two, just touching again on that strategics versus venture capital angle that you briefly spoke about as well and why you've decided to go down the strategic route. Yeah, so I, I, I took strategic capital in all three of my companies. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I think I think that look, venture has its place, of course. Um, but in my mind, I'm very passionate about combining customers, infusing customers into your business, especially early on, because I think it's better for everyone. Number one, if what you're doing makes sense for the customer anyway, in our case, you know, AGL and RICQ and all these other companies, right? Mervac, et cetera. Then why would they not want to help you build it? Why would they not want to be a part of that? <laughs> and if they don't want to do that, then you need to ask, if they want to, don't want to do that and the venture guys want to fund it, you should ask yourself deeper questions. Like, you know, if they don't really care, if it's not that important to them that they want to buy a PC business, then 
do they really care? Are they really going to work with you in the end, right? Are they going to buy from you? I think it's, so I think to me, it's actually much more existential than that. I, I think I love going to customers because if they say no, I'm not even, I'm not even, it's even less the investment. If they say no, then I, I may not want to do this thing, right? So I don't want to start a company ever unless a customer signing a check, either as equity or deposit. I have like a very hard discipline about that because the risk is I lose five years of my life toiling away in a zombie concept when the problem doesn't exist. And so my first company, I had, you know, the, the founder of a, a big parking company, the CEO of a shopping center company, they invested the second time around. I had Seek, I had seven recruiting agencies invest in the, in the HR one. And, and this time, you know, the problem was really underwriting and, and selling distribution. And so I want to make sure that the company was formed of those people around the table so that they could help us figure it out. So every time we hit problems, I could turn around and say, hey, this pricing isn't working or this direction isn't working or why is no one buying? And they would tell me why not because they got their asses on the line, right? Yep. Absolutely. And how do you go about asking a customer for, for equity or an investment? That's not something that a lot of people have experience in. I, I think that, um, I think it's actually a much easier conversation than, well, it can be an easier conversation than going to a venture investor, although the process is much more painful and longer. But I think the message is really simple. I think this is an interesting problem. Um, if it makes sense, I'd love to raise the money. I'd love you to have a piece of the business instead of the venture investors. Do you really do you think this is a big problem? And, and what's interesting in that conversation is, is that that customer now completely changes their mindset from you're trying to sell me something, so I'm going to be guarded, to okay, well, given you're not trying to peddle me something, um, let's actually talk about if this makes sense or not, right? And you start to then actually have a conversation where they go, look, I've got to be honest with you. I've been approached seven times already. The price is 30% less than you said and twice as good. And I don't want any of it because my real problem, Jason, is actually not that. It's this other thing that no one's going to help me solve right now. And you don't know why, Jason, but it's actually that I, I am being forced to cut costs 40% because in my department, for example, there's all these other pressures going on right now. And I did it, did it, did it. And you go, oh my God. And so I think what you want to try to do is to sit down with customers in the early days and understand where the pain is with that customer, right? And certainly in the enterprise world, right? And, um, and, and so I think the conversation is simply, look, I want to make sure I'm going after the right problem. Is this a real problem, right? And, is it, and, and if it is, am I thinking about it the right way? And if I am, then are you guys interested, instead of me raising the million dollars seed round, whatever it is, um, are you guys interested in putting in two fifty dollars or $500,000 um, and I'll give you a 50% discount, for example, over the first five years you use my product, right? But own a piece of the company and I'll give you a discount for being the first customer and let's go build this together, right? And I think the likelihood that you build a great company with that formula is infinitely higher, in my humble opinion, than simply raising money from mom and pops or like if you can't raise from strategic, you go to venture. You can't raise from venture, you, you know, you go to friends and family and angels. And if you can't go there, you go to whoever you can, right? But if the greatest discipline in building a business is doing it with the customer, if you, have, if you have the privilege of doing that. And I would stop at nothing to find a customer that says, I agree there's pain here. I, I can't cut a check, but you know what? I'll give you the, the full $250,000 annual license fee. Give me the discount of 125, I'll take the other 125 as equity. Like any way you can find a way to ensure the customer truly is 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 on the line that you're going after a problem that matters and that they're incentivized to work with you as a partner. And if you do that, the likelihood of success not being roadkill goes up just infinitely.
That's amazing. Um, Richard, I'm conscious of time. So I really just want to ask you just, you know, one or two more questions. Um, thank you so much, by the way, for spending time with us on the podcast. Um, okay. One of my questions is in terms of customer acquisition. Again, you, you mentioned you're up against, you know, a lot of competitors who have been very entrenched in the market and you see them on ads every single day. So, you know, what's your strategy for Honey um, on that customer acquisition path to overcome these current incumbents in market? Look, I think the, the good news is, is that the bad news is, is that there's big incumbents. The good news is there's big incumbents, right? So my, my view is, is that there is no one in Australia that's building a home insurance product that's really started from the ground up to say, how do we invent this in a way that's actually sensible for consumers, right? Where it's a third of the time to buy it and we're spending hundreds of dollars to help people. And, you know, you get all this value added services and discounts for being safer. Like, how do we really do something special there, right? And so I think the good news is that we expect word of mouth to be a major component. So we're gonna go very heavy on digital. We're gonna go very heavy on specific communities that we think will start the flash and lead to virality, right? Um, but, but for us, I think a lot of it will come down to word of mouth and people telling people. And if you think about a lot of people that especially like the millennials, right? Um, they're very active on social. And if you're doing a great job for people and just focus on your product, my view is, is that the MP, average MPS for home insurance in Australia is six. Meaning this is not a loved right. industry. Like no one's jumping up yeah. and down saying, oh my God, I love my insurance company. Like it's just, it's not true. The data does not support that, right? Um, you know, one in seven people or something were rejected their claims last year. I mean, this is not, this is not a loved industry. Like that, that you know, so I think we're blessed with a fairly average baseline to put it mildly. Like most people don't love, the average person, by the way, pays 27% too much for home insurance. If they literally just called their insurance company back, and said, hey, I'm in my same house right now. What are you charged? They'd give you a discount of 27%. It's called a loyalty tax. They're literally increasing the price because they know that you don't choose to shop around. Like many customers could cancel their home insurance anytime, for example, switch to honey. But there's been this convenient idea in the market that you have to wait till the end of the year for your policy, which is absolute BS. Meaning you can cancel anytime you're legally, they're legally required to give you a refund and the rest. But the insurance companies assume that you won't shop around till the end, you kind of forget, and then it clocks over to the next year. And so you get ream 27% premium okay so you know we have to try to help people understand that they can absolutely stop their home insurance currently anytime we have to focus a lot on, on helping people to kind of switch more easily which a big company to try to make difficult and we need to make sure that we focus on the product because that ultimately product kills everything right if you do an amazing job for people they'll tell their friends they'll tell their cousins that's going to be infinitely more cheaper than, than advertising buses right yeah that's amazing. And my last question for you, Richard, before we wrap up the podcast is, you know, what are your plans for for the future of Honey and your growth? Uh, definitely stay in Australia um, for the next certainly three to five years. We have no plans to, to leave the shores. And uh, we, we want to be spending as much time as we can going, being a specialist in, in home insurance, like home contents landlord. We only want to do that. And we want to be like world class at that, meaning we want to do such a good job that people would almost feel it's crazy to work with a different provider, right? And so we want to be focusing all of our time on how do we create additional free technology and free services for people, you know, where we're getting heat, uh, images, for example, from satellites and, you know, you get a text message and it goes, hey, Jason, we're seeing a leak in your roof right now. You're not going to feel it maybe for a few months. We're just a bit worried or that tree looks like it could fall onto your roof. Just maybe check it out. Like, how do we do things that blow people's minds that really help them? And if way you know and, and and we want to do a great job of that over the next three or four years which is how do we build consumer products that well people in, for home insurance and make a proactive truly proactive insurance that helps you ahead of time um and focus on that in australia and um and i don't 
I don't think in the next three to five years, we can do much more than that. I think that's a whole company is my view. Yep. That's incredible. Richard, thank you so much for spending time on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. I've learned a lot and uh, you know, it, it's amazing what you've done truly. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me.